When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mohammed Gamaldeen, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to John, Dr. John Cardina about his new book, Lives of Weeds, Opportunism, Resistance, Folly. Dr. John Cardina grew up in Northeast Ohio. He developed an interest in plant ecology ecology, while hiking in the woods and working on farms and gardens. He holds degrees in plant sciences from Ohio State, Virginia Tech, and Penn State. He has spent 35 years conducting research on weed ecology and environmental science and is now a professor emeritus with Ohio State University. Dr. John Cardina, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Great. Great to have you. So let's just jump in. John, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, that is where you were born, raised, uh, where you went to school, uh, how you became interested in weeds and environmental history or environmental science, and whether you had a mentor or scholarly work that drove your research interest. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to, to talk about those things. Um, so I, I uh, was born in the state of Ohio um, and to a couple of uh, parents who my, my father had a, had a rural background and uh, worked in nurseries and um, knew a lot about uh, trees and uh, flowers and things like that. And my mother came from the city and was was a learner of, of all that stuff, but became quite a, a good gardener herself. And so um, I grew up there in, in Northeast Ohio and had the uh, great opportunity to uh, spend a lot of time hiking in the woods. Uh, I learned the names of, of so many trees and, and other plants and I uh, was always had developed this curiosity of, about them, uh, you know, how it is that they d- did what they did and turned color and made flowers and fruits and all these things. And uh, I also had the great opportunity to work on uh, farms uh, in in my area, uh, various farms making hay or helping on vegetable farms and, and things like that. So I, I was close to, to uh, plant and plant science most of my life. And um, uh, I'm one of six children. And uh, for some reason, the others were more clever and uh, somehow were able to get out of doing the 
farm work, so I was the one that my father always tapped to uh, to work uh, side by side with him, uh, hoeing or uh, tilling the the garden, whatever we were doing. I seemed to always be the one who was uh, left without some other excuse for for what I was doing. So, um, but that of course was great training um, and um, led me to uh, major in uh, agronomy as an undergraduate at Ohio State University. I never had any any intention of studying weeds, um, but I was always I had this curiosity about them because of how they just, they were always there, no matter what we did to try to suppress them, they always came back. And that resilience uh, uh, had a real interest in me. And I always wanted to know the names of all the plants. So learning weeds was a great way to learn plant families and the different characteristics of various families. So when I traveled the world, had opportunity to do some travel, um, I would look at uh, the vegetation wherever I was, and at least I could, even though I don't know the plant, I could at least tell what family it was in and something about its biology from from that. And so I did some work um, in graduate school um, at at, uh, at uh, Penn State. I worked on a project looking at the impact of herbicides, uh, chemical herbicides used to control weeds, and their impact on uh, microorganisms, soil microorganisms, specifically rhizobia that that, uh, are important for legumes for fixing nitrogen. And that led me into the world of the herbicide end of of weeds and so those two came together and uh, frankly when i got out that the jobs were in weed science not in plant physiology or other things that i was maybe thought i was more interested in but i it was a it was a it was a great um turning point and opportunity for me to to do that um, to to get a chance to work with weeds because um, I've the more I worked with them and with farmers who are concerned about them the more I found that farmers have a real interest in managing weeds and that uh, gardeners um, that seems to be so sort of one of the, the things that come brings people together all the time is to talk about their their the latest weed problem that's out there. Um, as for mentors, um, you know, so many people helped me along the way. I um, um, No specific mentor, someone I followed, but I worked with um, farmers who um, just had just incredible wisdom about the 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 plants that they managed and people who know so much about the natural world and I just sort of envied their um, their connection to those things and how they seemed to be able to put things together on the connection between plants and animals and and their environment and um, I saw that in other people and that's what I think drove my interest in the, the environmental science. Fascinating. Thank you for that. Uh, my next question comes back to the, the book at, at hand, uh, and it's more general. How did you come to write Lives of Weeds? Well, um, yeah, after um, 
working with uh, plants, weeds in particular, most of my life, um, you know, observing, studying, and pulling weeds, I came to, to see them in a different perspective, not just as these pestiferous sort of plants to be gotten rid of, but as um, the social connection is so strong with them. Um, Everyone who does things outdoors has some connection with weeds. You know, they're in your way or they're, you find them lovely or um, you know about the things that, uh, um, the medicinal properties or what parts can be eaten. So there's this real connection to weeds. And I saw, saw weedy plants as a social and cultural phenomenon as much as a biological curiosity. So I wrote the book sort of to explore biology and history between, behind rather the um, this ambiguous and sort of contradictory relationship that people have with the, the plants that they consider to be weeds. Yeah, and I, I think that really uh, stands out in your text. The uh, definitely the the interaction, the human interaction, which I'll I'll get to in a, in a few. Uh, but first, John, I was hoping you could paint a picture for our listeners about why you have chosen um, only eight weeds to focus on: dandelion, Florida beggarwood, velvet leaf, nut sedge, mare's tail, uh, mare's tail, pigweed, ragweed, foxtail. Each one helps you tell. To tell helps you to tell a story. Can you give us insight into why these weeds? Sure. Um, well, many times people talk about weeds just in general as though they're all the same. So I wanted to highlight differences and and demonstrate that that's that they're all unique, like we are all unique. You, you, you know, talk about people, but people are unique, and and. Um, so these are weeds. I, I had a purpose for each one, um, and each of these are weeds that I worked with in a research capacity. So I conducted research at some level or have some kind of a personal connection uh, with all of them. The The book is about this connection between people and weeds and me being in the people category, I had to show how I am personally related to those weeds. So I have personal stories in in every chapter and all of them, and my connection it demonstrates my connection to them. So then beyond that, I I also wanted the book to be instructive in uh, uh, plant biology, plant ecology. So they all also gave me an opportunity to to represent different features of plant biology. So I could talk about uh, dispersal mechanisms or breeding systems or basic genetics or uh, photosynthesis and and sort of allocate those for for each of the each of the chapters the the, the weed the species that I thought best demonstrated the, uh, that scientific information. And I think that really showed through uh, where uh, each one had a specific story history, and it really helped to degeneralize this you know large classification of just anything that wasn't a crop or a flowering plant as as a weed. Uh, and I think 
the readers would be it will be really appreciative of that, especially those who are looking for uh, something beyond the generalization about you know what these uh, you know these strange uh, plants that pop up uh, out uh, uh, along among crops or grasslands. Right, and and like I say, they, I also tried to demonstrate how people are not only my connection, but people that there is a a history, a great human connection on each of these, so that they none of them would have become weeds without the help of of some of human activity and selection, or or in in some cases mostly good intentions, but uh, sometimes it didn't always go the right way. Exactly. And how our conception of weeds change, what is a weed changes over time uh, with, with our conception of what's important or, or what, is, uh, what is a weed or what is not a weed. So my next question is about your research methodology. Um, can you tell our listeners what sources you use to write this history of weeds? Um, most importantly, um, it is part personal ethnography and your own experience in a field. And, and if you could say how important was your 35 plus years of field work to writing the text? Well, certainly it was, it was important because it uh, gave me a, a, a background into those, into those species. I couldn't have drawn on, on a species that I didn't know anything about probably um, and and done justice to it because I really wanted the, that personal connection. Um, and because of that personal connection, I knew things about the, the, the weed, that species, that maybe were a little offbeat, that uh, stories I'd heard or things that uh, I had experienced on farms or in gardens. Um, so that was that was important. But also, the writing the book was an enormous learning experience. I, I learned so much about the, these species because there were obviously things that I, I didn't know. I didn't know all the history and all the connections and all the personalities of the people involved. That, that was one thing that was like when I would get to some a, a person connected with this uh, particular species, I wanted to know more about that person, not just, oh, this was so-and-so had this role, but who was that person really? And so that drove me uh, um, into the, I, I, I looked as much into the history and anthropology uh, literature as I did into the biological literature uh, on, for each of these species. The, the, uh, the, there's a great resource called the Biological Heritage um, uh, Dictionary or Resource and website, Biological Heritage website. And that is an incredible uh, place where I could look at texts written in the 1500s and and to go back and find historical information, um, you could even they were even searchable sometimes. So that's just an incredible, and that raises the bar for the level of 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 information that that you of depth of um, you know study that uh, uh, one needs to do. I think now to to uh, understand something. Thank you, and. I, I would say uh, it really shows through, especially when you talk about your experiences 
with uh with various farmers or NGOs or um uh people um in the uh, uh at the forefront of uh of 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 crop uh, cultivation uh who are dealing with weeds daily uh, and those those experiences really help to shape um the narrative if i may say now i you you already hinted at this and, and spoke a little bit about a little bit about it, and, but in almost every chapter, you describe the human plant interactions that have led to the explosion of a particular weed. A lot of times, it is because a weed was once cultivated as a crop and planted across the country for various reasons. Uh, for example, like dandelion, uh, dandelion or uh, the velvet leaf. Uh, uh, and and thus they became a part of the seed bank. In other cases, it was connected to human movement. Now, finally, how how are weeds a lens into the ways man-made actions can influence uh, the Earth's ecology? Right. Um, So weeds are are a lens, the way I see it, in that... Um, they respond in in very predictable ways, um, uh, according to uh, just uh, plant evolution and and plant biology. And um, the, what's the 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 ironic thing is that that humans sometimes don't pay attention to that. So, in spite of all the all the knowledge. Uh, it, on how uh, evolution occurs and how selection uh, happens and how um, species change over time, we sort of ignore that in in uh, in uh, the way we manage try to manage weeds in, in agriculture. So keep making the same mistake over and over. That that that's sort of the story, in particular of of the pigweeds. Um, keep making the same mistake over and over and until the, things just get get worse and worse and we get to a point where they're, um, they're selecting uh, biotypes, genotypes that are very, very difficult to manage. So that's, that's how I see it, is that, that they are, weeds are these um, uh, well-known and uh, emblems of, of of plant evolutionary biology that uh, uh, people are are quite familiar with, um, and so if we just need to to learn our biology and pay attention to it, I guess is is how I see it. Could you speak to some of the story, for example, with like the dandelion uh, and its historical importance and uses? Uh, in the early modern or pre-modern periods, and then how it was cultivated even in uh, in, in the nineteenth century, and how that has that spurred its its uh, its integration into uh, the American landscape. Sure. Um, so the the human connection with dandelion is ancient. We don't know when when it began, but um, we just assume that. Um, 
early early humans were were intrigued by this yellow flower and and those uh, white puffs and what after all you you see this what child isn't intrigued by that and wants to stop along the path and and blow on the dandelion so I imagine you know early humans were intrigued by that they, then they found that actually the leaves were edible uh, certain when the plants were young um, uh, people use could use the grind the roots and and as medicine and um, so I think that just the sort of the the appearance of it um, intrigued humans and then people would would take them along with them. They're, they're stories that um, people um, uh, had them in their in their apron pockets uh, on the on the Mayflower uh, because they were used as a as a medicinal plant or as a uh, vegetable plant. Um, so early in uh, you know American colonial times, um, they were grown in in gardens, um, and, uh, and in fact, there were several varieties that were selected and in seed catalogs. Um, and, and named and um, so uh, and I don't want to I, I think to readers also need to know <laughs> that the the food um, green that is available in grocery stores when called dandelion is not the dandelion the, the weedy dandelion it's a different species it's sicorium it's like a chicory it's not the taraxacum that became a weed so those are two different two different animals sort of um, but the the weedy dandelion then it was, it was highly prized until people sort of developed this notion that they needed to have a pristine green lawn and then suddenly the dandelion uh, uh, was offensive uh, having yellow interrupt the green and then particularly then when the yellow turned gray that was uh, objectionable and so they went through all kinds of uh, methods, including um, you know different kinds of machines to to chop off the dandelion flowers and the mixing up kerosene and other very toxic materials to try to to in an effort to kill dandelions. So the but the the here again this is where you know knowing a little bit about of the plant biology we should know that the more you you do those kinds of things um, there are going to be some that survive and the survivors they you know likely survive because they have the genetic capacity to tolerate whatever it is that you're using to kill them and they'll so they're the ones that propagate they're the ones that, that have progeny that become the next generation and so over time the the more we try to kill the dandelions with gasoline or kerosene or flames or uh, sulfuric acid or whatever kinds of crazy things salts that people want to throw at them the more we're making dandelion a hardy uh, plant and so um, then um, it came to the in the 1940s when they um, through the, I go to that brief history briefly about the sort of an a, an aftermath of uh, the Second World War they had these materials called 2,4-D and um, it's it did a great job of of controlling uh, 
most broadleaf weeds, including dandelions, if it was done right. But that just became the the spur for this whole whole big industry that is still out there now, uh, uh, the chemical uh, herbicide industry. And dandelions were sort of like the the key weed that. Uh, um, stimulated the development of that industry. I can go on, but I'll let, let you drop in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd love to have you uh, continue. Uh, but I just was going to say that the it, it really did stun me, some of the uh, measures they took to try and rid uh, uh, lawns of, of dandelions, uh, especially the kerosene and gasoline, which just in hindsight seems uh, very ludicrous. Well, especially in, in because the dandelion itself does no harm. I mean, here's a plant that really, uh, um, it it isn't poisonous. It doesn't. No, a weed in some places in agriculture, weeds are incredibly serious. That farmers lose their livelihood because uh, of a weed, or they um, there. There's some places where they make uh, agriculture production impossible. But a dandelion does nothing like that. It, it isn't harmful. It's just, that's why it's a symbol. Uh, it's, a, it's an indication of, of how humans use symbols. That with a, this botanical entity becomes now a symbol of, of, a, of a curse of the, when it really is not causing any problem. And so then, so people are willing to put questionable uh, materials, uh, pesticides on them that really have potential to cause environmental and health problems. Uh, they, they were willing to do that to get rid of something that isn't really a, uh, an environmental or health problem. And that sort of shows the, the irony, the, the, the folly uh, of the title of the book um, of uh, human involvement in, in making a plant a weed. All of the weeds aren't that way. Some are very serious, but that particular one I thought was such a great example of how uh, humans, you know, use, construct the, uh, the uh, weediness from just uh, as a reflection of cultural values. Exactly. And I think uh, your readers will appreciate that. Uh, and this connects nicely, I think, to my next question uh, on herbicide. So I Reading it, I was thinking about you know my neighbors who use herbicide to rid their lawns of weeds uh, with little consideration of the effects, which uh, uh, effects of the chemicals in the subsoil and waterways. Now you discussed the reliance of herbicides in suburbia and farmlands from the U.S. to West Africa, and termed this the herbicide treadmill, which I think is a really great. Uh, 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 wording for uh, for what's happening, uh, but can you describe the history of herbicides in plant and weed control and the alternative measures you have promoted, uh, including biological ways or the what you call the integrated pest management system? Sure. So um, the humans have been trying to suppress weeds since the beginning of agriculture. Uh, so. The, the 
um, they've been using f physical means. Imagine early on uh, just uh, using physical means, pulling or uh, sharp stones or sharp uh, twigs or <laughs> things like that to, to get rid of weeds. Well, imagine once if someone uh, discovered that actually uh, there was some material like salt that they could use, and that would that would you know suppress these weeds. That was that was like a real technology change, and so um, over the millennia, people have tried all kinds of 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 things to to selectively suppress the weeds and let the desirable plants grow. Um, uh, salts were used, many different kinds of salts were used for years, things that um, that we now would just consider way more toxic, actually, than the, the, the materials that farmers are, are using now. And, and with the development of organic chemistry, it discovered that, that you know people could synthesize a molecule that was that, that did not previously exist. Uh, and that's what bio organic chemistry is all about. Um, then you find you could actually synthesize a, a chemical that will uh, suppress one group of plants and not another. And that's where, for example, that's where I said 2,4-D came in as a group of auxins that, that suppress broadleaf weeds without affecting grasses. That's, I mean, that was considered miraculous at the time. And then, uh, so that started in the late 30s, early well, I guess early 40s, um, and so the, by by 1949, those materials in the early 50s were available to farmers, and that and that just changed changed agriculture. It allowed farmers to farm much larger areas of land, and uh, the idea that you could just spray the stuff on a field instead of spending hours and hours, you know, with a slow-driving tractor pulling this tillage equipment, that was really considered to be a great technological advance. And so um, over time, these chemicals have just become, gotten uh, more sophisticated and um, more uh, um, specific. Here again, this is where we get into knowing a little bit about uh, plant biology. The the early like salt just would just you know essentially would desiccate the plant, but some but a more modern uh, herbicide will attack one specific enzyme that occurs in one group of plants. I mean that's a that's a big technological advance, but the but the more we do that, you can get more and more specific then the more likely we're able to, the plant is able to find a way to respond to it. Um, it's like, it, it's hard to respond um, for, um, to develop, there's not likely to be uh, evolutionary pressure that will, that plants will be able to selectively have, have a genotype that that survives, say, being, you know, 
cut off or yanked out of the ground because that's just too big of a disruption of the of the biological processes going on in the plant. But if it's a very specific um, attack from a, uh, your control method where you're just going after one molecule, then there's likely to be ver- genetic variation in that species so that some of them, a few of them, will, sur- will be able to tolerate it. And therefore, you know, over time, we're selecting the plants that are either tolerant or resistant to the the herbicides that are being used. And so my view, my response to that um, as a researcher was um, I, my interest in weeds was not with, uh, in, on the herbicides. I wanted to find alternative uh, approaches to managing weeds. Um, and I just thought there have, there have to be something out there. And so let's look at the Let's look at plant processes. Like, how is it that weeds are are able to survive? There have to, and and you look around. The world is not covered with with weeds. There's there are things that are suppressing them. So, what is it in nature that is keeping the weeds in check? And you find that it's things like there are many, or they're, they're, you know, fighting for survival with many organisms, with, with uh, uh, fungi and bacteria, many pathogens, many insects also are attacking the plants, and um, there's competition among them. Therefore, n- none of them actually be- actually become, you know, so uh, successful that we can't uh, have uh, any kind of uh, flower or, or crop or vegetable production. Um, there are things out there in nature that are keeping uh, things, the populations in check. So that's what I wanted to, to find and learn and try to exploit. So um, very early on, I started looking at plant pathogens as as a means of uh, um, suppressing weeds, and there was a a big movement in the in the eighties to find plant pathogens that uh, we could uh, take from the wild and um, culture in uh, some in vats, just like you culture any kind of bacteria or or fungi, and then spray it out on the field. And um, then you'd have, in a way, a biological control, killing the weeds with a fungus rather than a a synthesized organic chemical. Um, There was a lot of interest in that, and and I participated in that and uh, had a a patent on one particular organism. But what happens there is that that creating a, a reliable plant disease is a very difficult thing. The plant pathologists have been people who deal with plant diseases. Plant pathologists have been trying to do that for experimentation purposes for a long time, and it's more difficult than than you think. Uh, so there are very few products available that actually uh, work that way. More likely, there are things like there's a to- there may be a toxin from a, a fungus, and so that led me to looking for. Uh, well, there are toxins that, that plants produce to suppress other plants. So we did some work on, on uh, sub- 
uh, selecting and extracting different uh, chemicals that were in seeds, uh, red clover seeds, celery seeds, um, many different plants. Uh, you can actually make an extract and then use them essentially like like you uh, people would a herbicide. But whether those are always uh, necessarily safer or not is can can be in a question. And then there then the other thing that I spent a lot of time studying was seed dormancy. Um, and what is it that that uh, wakes up a seed that's been lying for years in the soil and suddenly it decides to germinate? Um, if we could keep it uh, sleeping there in the soil, that would be really nice. And so we tried to do some uh, uh, experiments to see. We know that one of the one of the factors that stimulate germination is light. So could we use uh, the absence of light to our cultivation, to our tillage and things at night uh, to keep the plants, those seeds uh, in the soil and keep them from germinating? And it does work. The problem is that it doesn't work well enough. It, it works maybe 60% uh, of the time. And for a farmer who's got thousands and thousands of dollars invested in a crop, they can't go with 60%. They need 99% reliability, and that's why they they use uh, the, the herbicides. Um, so that's though, but those are the kinds of things we experimented on, and um, th my idea was not that we would solve all the problems with with these, but that they would be part of an integrated approach. Um, they call this integrated pest management, where you try to use all the biological methods possible uh, to favor the crop. Uh, to make the crop healthy and to suppress the weeds before you then have to rely on something that uh, a rescue treatment from from a herbicide and and if you're lucky sometimes uh, maybe 60% of the time you can get by without having to to use the herbicide at all so that that was the that that's the rationale behind that now, in a number of chapters, uh, you touch on colonization uh, and uh, its historical uh, impact on plant ecologies globally. From the ways in which colonial powers removed plants and burned landscapes to grow cash crops, but also in our contemporary period, you say, I couldn't help wondering if dependence on imported, uh, imported pesticides, GMO seeds, and steel machines that run on diesel and oil wasn't just another kind of colonialism. Could you expand on colonialism's connection to weeds and their history and how today some of our foreign agricultural policies are a new type of colonialism? Right. Um, thank you for asking that question. Uh, I really appreciate that. I, um, because that's something that uh, an issue is sort of dear to my heart. That you know, the whole the one of the things that happened in colonialism is that the the uh, colonized people become dependent. They come become dependent on the colonizers. The colonizers provide uh, goods and um, uh, you know they, they sort of just. The, the economy is taken over by the colonizer who provides uh, things that, um, so that the, the colonizing power makes money on that and, and the, 
the the colonized people end up sort of being subservient after all, right? Um, so, um, and I guess what my my point was that um, these um, in 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 some places. Um, the um, people trying to modernize, I, I'm not sure I really like that word, but just to try to adopt um, uh, so-called modern agricultural methods, uh, mechanical, industrial uh, agriculture methods as, as a way to improve uh, the standard of, of living, end up being dependent on the the sources of uh, the modern tools, right? So um, if, if, uh, if you want to modernize by using uh, tractors and you don't make tractors, then you're dependent on somebody else to sell you those tractors. And you've got to come up with the foreign exchange to, to uh, purchase those tractors. And the same thing happens when you try to modernize and say, well, the idea of having people out there hoeing and bending over and hoeing, that's, that's a, a subservient thing. We don't want people doing that. We want to relieve them of that, of that burden, which uh, is a noble thing. But when you replace that now with, with uh, chemical industrial technology, uh, um, that you have to get from overseas, or you have to get it from a multinational corporation. Now, once again, you're dependent on them uh, for that, and you have to come up with the the cash to to uh, to purchase that. It isn't something that's done indigenously. So that's um, that's that's the connection that I'm trying to make there. And it's a dilemma. It's a ter- it's a really hard dilemma because we understand that people want to raise their standard of living, um, and I'm all f- all for that. And and because that is allows people to be educated, and that's so important. the The problem is if we do that in a way that makes them now dependent on someone else. Have you know what have what have we gained? It's it's a really complicated issue. It is indeed, uh, and something that uh, we see uh, happening uh, across uh, the entire continent as uh, as foreign uh, countries uh, are trying to industrialize agriculture uh, for their uh, uh, for their own nation's uh, uh, consumption, um, and. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you spoke about it in a number of places uh, in your text, and hopefully uh, uh, some uh, others, uh, and I know others have, are working on this, uh, but you, it could be connected, uh, your work can be connected to uh, what they're doing. Um, so, uh, kind of touching on uh, plasticity or resilience, um, in the epilogue of your book, John, you say, and I quote, resilience of plants reflects the resilience of nature in which we and weeds are inextricably entangled. Could you expand on this and how you actually have hope based on our experiences uh, with COVID uh, in the last couple of years and um, climate change? Okay, well, um, 
but the the hope is that that there is capacity out there for people to change the way they do things. What happened during COVID, at least for a while, initially for you know the few months there in uh, in twenty twenty, was that things slowed down, that people. Um, I know that they, you know, I know that that's an e- created economic crisis. I totally understand that. But when, in the process, we use fewer resources, um, we didn't travel as much, we didn't use as much um, petroleum and products. And the thing, what showed me is people are capable of doing that. They're they're capable of making change, even though it's difficult. And the only way we're going to going to survive the climate crisis is if we make some changes. We can't go about it and just think, oh, the technology will just get better. And so we can keep going about living the way we always have been at the same standards of, of pace uh, of things and and do all the things we've always been doing in this, and and somehow survive this people have to be willing to make change and what's what i've found in in that particular um, part of the book there is after looking back on on agriculture and seeing that um, you know in the very same place where now there is, you know, high resource use agriculture. At at other times uh, in history, people have lived viable, healthy, happy lives without that. So people have survived without all the fancy technology. And so that... um, without all the uh, oil consumption, without all the the um, excessive, um, you know, con- consumption of uh, Earth's resources, it's possible for us to, to do that, and we can still uh, live viable, good lives um, without the, the latest gimmicks and things. That, that's sort of where the, the hope comes, that, that people, we see that people are, that it is possible to do that. So it just, it's just up to people to, to make a choice and the choice begins sort of as what you eat. Do you eat food that comes from high consumption uh, of resources, you know, um, uh, uh, corn-fed beef, or do you eat something that is grown locally um, and grown with uh, less uh, use of, of uh, resources? it's possible people change and that's what's that's what's hopeful is that people can change this last question um connected to your text uh may sound a little pessimistic uh, but it's sort of connected to uh what you were just speaking about um but i must ask um because you cite the example of the Amish smallholder farms um, and, and kind of hold them up as a as one of the like Jeff's, Jeffersonian ideals uh, that we could look towards, um, and 
But why can we not force through legislation, or, or can we, through legislation or social movements, industrial farming to change its practices with herbicides and pesticides? It seems like every chance you were given uh, to influence change was met by the need to produce solutions to weeds quickly and grow crops efficiently. Can we slow these processes down to where a new system of weed and pest management could be introduced? Right. This is one of these uh, real big dilemmas where how do you how do you move a, a great big system around? How do you slow down something that's moving so fast and is so so mammoth? The, and um, I'm I'm not I'm not hopeful that we can not um, it, not hopeful that that can be done easily. In the in a legislative sense, because the politics is such a mess, I think it only can happen by individuals making making change. And if individuals make change and refuse to buy the the food that's produced one way or another, or they re, they stop they stop traveling so much, uh, needless travel when they could walk, take a bicycle take public transportation, when people make their personal changes on behalf of the, the environment and their future and their children's future, then we won't need legislation. The, that it, things will, it'll change um, out, of, out of necessity because the, the markets, if, you know, in the capitalist system, this is how it works, the markets will respond. And we see this with electric vehicles. I mean, the demand for electric vehicles now is is enormous. It's you know can't be filled, and um, so we didn't need legislation to make that happen. But uh, I think people's concern for the environment and uh, not wanting to to buy oil from various places uh, stimulates that. So I think the same thing has to happen with food and agriculture. Definitely agree. Uh, so on that note, let's uh, you know remind people to 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 take charge of their own uh, their own uh, pantries and and uh, change the way that they interact uh, uh, with the earth and uh, and we'll we'll uh, be able to have uh, better days uh, uh, hopefully. Um, well, John, uh, I've taken up uh, uh, a lot of your time, uh, but as a pleasure is all mine. Uh, but to conclude, if I may ask you, uh, what are you working on now? Okay, so I'm, uh, I've explored several things. Um, and one is I'm, I'm sort of working on a, a chronicle of um, – urban gardens. That's where I think that in urban uh, areas, the idea of people being able to produce, they're not going to totally feed themselves, I know, but at least they can produce something and then get an appreciation for the natural world by their connection to the plants in the garden. So I'm trying to chronicle how a, a garden changes and what's possible um, uh, to do. And there's so much great uh, stuff out there, P people in urban areas doing that. And it's it's not only biology and agriculture, it's community. There's so much community building that happens at the same time. So that's sort of keeping me with the, the plant-human connection. 
Sounds fascinating. Uh, and uh, as uh, as someone who resides in an urban area, uh, I look forward to uh, really reading that text. Uh, and if it's just as engrossing as Lives of Weeds, uh, I'm sure uh, I'll enjoy it and our readers will enjoy it. Um, finally, I just want to thank you for being on our show today. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation uh, and the book. And uh, I hope you uh, take care. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you.